Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, I want to talk about something that we care quite a bit about, and that is rights. Freedom really is all about the preservation of the rights to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, or so we're supposed to believe. But I'm going to suggest something a little controversial, even for friends of the show and fellow libertarians, and that is maybe we should stop talking about rights, or at least stop talking about them in the way that we talk about them, the right to life, the right to liberty, the right to keep the fruits of your labor, the right to travel where you wish to travel. And the reason I say that maybe we should stop is we have so many conflicts about what is a right and what's not. And of course, the first thing that probably comes to mind is assertions by the left that healthcare is a right. Healthcare is, you know, a basic human need and therefore every person has a right to it. Same with education. And it's not as easy to overcome those arguments based on the way that we think about rights, that there are numerous rights, all of which could never be named. That's kind of the basis of the Ninth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which says the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So that opens the door. Now, of course, we have a very well-defined way of distinguishing what is a true right from a false one. But I've got news for you. The great majority of people out there are not using airtight reason to make these decisions. And when they see somebody who might be suffering or a bad case of somebody who, let's say, went bankrupt because of health care bills, got a disease, no fault of their own, and had a bad consequence, it's pretty easy for someone to be open to the idea that healthcare is a right. Or if they come from a very poor family, and let's face the fact that if you are from a poor family, your educational opportunities are not going to be as good, especially with our present system where the schools are provided by the government, ostensibly to make sure that everyone gets an equal chance at education. Well, ha ha ha, how has that worked out? 
In any case, we've got all sorts of arguments for things that people like Bernie Sanders claim are rights that we know are not, but we don't have a cut-and-dried way of distinguishing what's a right and what is not that's simple that we can communicate to others. So I'm going to suggest one, and it's this. You have a right to what you own and nothing else. And the limit of your right to what you own are the property rights of others, so what they own. And that's it. And I'm going to tell you how I get to that point, but let that sink in for a second because I'm going to say, you know, instead of saying, well, that violates my right to liberty and that violates my right to privacy and that violates my right to travel, that instead we should just say, I own this, that property right is inviolable, and that's it. No, you don't have a right to health care because you don't have a property right in either the goods or services that comprise what we call health care. Okay, so where did I come up with this? Just a fever dream by some guy in Buffalo? No, I'm actually going to make an argument that this is the founding principle of the United States, that rather than life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is one way of saying it, a more succinct and accurate way of saying it is you have a right to what you own. That right is inalienable, which means it can't be taken away, can't be voted away by anybody. As far as the Declaration of Independence says, that the purpose of the government is to secure your property. So let's back up a little bit. Let's talk about where those ideas came from. Now, anyone who's been reading my writing for a few years, especially those who have been reading it maybe for the last 14 years, knows I'm a John Locke fan. And some might say, what? You know, we're going to talk about John Locke again? Well, yes, we are. I don't think we talk about John Locke enough. I'll, I'll make a statement here. If you want to understand the founding principles of the United States, which were libertarian principles, and I talk about this in my book, Where Do Conservatives and Liberals Come From?, you only have to read one little pamphlet, and that's John Locke's Second Treatise of Government. And that will cover all of libertarianism as far as the theory goes, as long as you remain a minarchist. And if you want to go the full Monte, as I would say, and become a, an ANCAP like me, then you've got to read Murray Rothbard's For New Liberty. Now, I'm not suggesting those are the only things you should read. And that by reading those two works that you understand everything and there's no value in reading all the great even authors we have today, like Tom Woods, Bob Murphy, Thomas DiLorenzo, etc., etc. However, to understand the bones of the philosophy, you just need those two books. And I'll go a step further to say that really, after John Locke's second treatise, nobody really broke any new ground until Murray Rothbard. Now, John Locke got the ball from like the five-yard line across midfield and all the way down to the, the 10, okay? And, and Murray Rothbard took it into the end zone from there. And that's not to diminish what Rothbard did because anybody who knows football knows those last 10 yards are the hardest, right? That's why they talk about the red zone. It's hard to score from there. So John Locke left us an enormous problem called a majority vote can stand in for our consent. And, and that's where Murray Rothbard really took the ball and said, no, wait a minute, you know, that, that doesn't make any sense. My ability to participate 
in a majority vote with millions of other people who might want to dispossess me of things I own can by no means be called consent without abusing the English language. So in any case, the common thread that runs through Locke and Rothbard is that the basis of the the liberty philosophy or the libertarian philosophy, if you want to call it that, is property rights. And although he didn't always apply the principle correctly to this situation or that, John Locke really wrote the book on this. So I want to get into a little proof, the receipts, so to speak, for um, these claims I'm making, and then make some suggestions about how we can maybe argue our own positions a little bit better. Now, I want to start with something that everybody is familiar with, which is the Declaration of Independence. Now, lately, the Declaration's been taking some hits, even from some right-leaning libertarians who say that this, this is not the document we should be looking to. And some of this is related to Abraham Lincoln and the whole propositional nation theory that, of course, I don't wholeheartedly agree with. But you know, there, there actually is some truth, as awful as Lincoln was, there is some truth to the idea that there were principles that underpinned the founding of the United States, and they were kind of encapsulated in this paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. I'll, I'll go, I'm going to read it. So it says, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And you know the rest. So a lot of conservatives take issue with the all men are created equal statement. Now, of course, sometimes they'll argue correctly that that shouldn't be taken any farther than this, that all people are created without any inherent authority or right to exercise authority over anybody else, that there is nothing preceding government that gives one person the right to rule over another. And that's all it means. And it's 100% true. And really, without that statement, you can't make an argument for the libertarian philosophy, either from a minarchist or anarchist perspective. And the reason that you can't is because it is that equality of all people in that very narrow way of defining equality that necessitates coming up with any theory for why force can ever be used against somebody else. I mean, even self-defense is rooted in the idea that all people are equal in the way that I stated before, and therefore one person cannot invade the property of another, and if that occurs, then the victim is allowed to defend himself. Well, that's based upon the victim being equal in the narrow sense uh, to the person who is invading his property. This is also the reason that you need to obtain the consent of the governed if you want to govern them according to the principles uh, expressed in the Declaration of Independence. Why do you need their consent? Because everybody is equal in a political sense. So it really is very important that we don't discard that idea just because you know the lunatic left is out there trying to make men and women identical to each other. Equal and identical are not the same thing. So in any case, this idea of political equality in nature 
is important because without it, you don't have rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You have privileges granted to whomever is greater than you, whoever is unequal to you. So the rights and the necessity of getting your consent is all rooted in this idea that we're all created equal. Okay, so where did Jefferson get this? Now, I know in his diary, he gives a very vague answer. Oh, I was just trying to express the, I can't remember the exact words, but the essence of the thing or something to that effect. But when you read the totality of Jefferson's writings, it's pretty evident that he was channeling John Locke during that passage in the Declaration of Independence. And he wasn't the only one. If you read Samuel Adams' Rights of the Colonists in 1772, this also reads like a kind of book report on Locke's second treatise. It's all the same arguments, basically just paraphrased by Adams. Getting back to Jefferson, if you read his letters, you'll find Locke either paraphrased or quoted directly several times throughout the the many letters he wrote back and forth to his friends and associates. On at least three occasions, he refers to John Locke as one of the three greatest men the world has ever produced, or one of the three greatest men who ever lived, along with Francis Bacon and Isaac Newton. So, of course, we know Jefferson was very interested in education and science. So, in terms of politics, it was always Locke. It was the one that he pointed to. The other two he admired for other reasons. And near the end of his life, when he was working on the University of Virginia, you know, something that we could talk about another time as far as whether that was a good idea or not, there's actually a board meeting where Jefferson is very definitive about where people should look if they want to understand the American conception of liberty, natural rights, and government. And I'm going to read a passage from it. This is from the meeting minutes of the University of Virginia Board of Visitors, March 4th, 1825. And there's a bunch of resolutions on different issues. And then at one point it reads, whereas it is the duty of this board to the government under which it lives, and especially to that of which this university is the immediate creation, to pay especial attention to the principles of government which shall be inculcated therein, and to provide that none shall be inculcated which are incompatible with those on which the constitutions of this state and of the U.S. were genuinely based in the common opinion. And for this purpose, it may be necessary to point out specifically where these principles are to be found legitimately developed. Resolved that it is the opinion of this board that as to the general principles of liberty and the rights of man in nature and in society, the doctrines of Locke in his essay concerning the true original extent and end of civil government, and of Sidney in his discourses on government, may be considered those generally approved by our fellow citizens of this and of the United States. Now, Jefferson refers to two documents there. One, the Locke essay we generally call the Second Treatise of Government. So Locke wrote two. And then he also refers to Algernon Sidney's Discourses on Government. And you're welcome to go and read all three of those essays, the first treatise by Locke and the um, Discourses on Government by Sidney, the second treatise by Locke. 
but I could save you some time to say that Locke's first treatise and Sidney's essay are both devoted mainly to refuting a treatise called Patriarcha by Sir Robert Filmer. Filmer's Patriarcha is basically an argument for the divine right of kings based on Filmer's interpretation of holy scriptures. So while all of this is valuable in understanding the context under which these documents were written, and of course, uh, the Sydney document has many of the same ideas that Locke's second treatise will deal with, it really is a matter that the first treatise by Locke and discourses on government by Sydney have one purpose, to kind of get the divine right of kings off the table. And then Locke sits down with his second treatise to say that now that that's out of the way, now let's try and construct some theory of government without the divine right of kings. So that's why I say if you read the second treatise, you really have all of the elements that went into the Declaration of Independence and the ideas of the founders. And the libertarian philosophy, for that matter, as long as you remain somebody who believes in a limited government. that time of the year again when we're all looking for something special to give friends and loved ones for the holidays. Unfortunately, the government and its bank have worked especially hard this year at doing what they do best, make things more expensive for the rest of us. Well, I have great news. You can get a free copy of my new ebook, An Anti-State Christmas. That's my gift to you in appreciation for listening. But that's not all. I've also made the book available as a paperback at an incredibly low price, so you can get a few copies to give as gifts. It makes a great stocking stuffer. And don't worry, this is not some preachy libertarian treatise. It's full of fun and even includes a special Christmas beverage recipe. Get more information and your free ebook at antistatechristmas.com. We help each other when we don't mean to. That's what we call the invisible hand. Something no politician understands. Just leave it up to supply and demand and follow the call. Now let me preempt some familiar objections people will raise. Well, wait a minute. Didn't Locke believe in this terrible thing? And he said that we couldn't allow people to be atheists, something Thomas Jefferson corrected him on. Yes, when you are breaking ground like Locke was doing and putting together principles that really have never been articulated in the way that he did during that essay, you're going to make mistakes applying them. We still make mistakes applying them today. So yes, you can go and pick and choose things that Locke was terribly wrong on. But as far as articulating the principles that we still use today and which Murray Rothbard used, this is where you're going to find them. So a lot of people, when talking about John Locke, will immediately say that he believed in the natural rights to life, liberty, and property. And and that's not wholly inaccurate. That's the way Samuel Adams speaks of it in Rights of the Colonists, which I referred to before. And there's a big kerfluffle sometimes about Jefferson replacing the word property with pursuit of happiness. But really, Locke did not speak in those terms at all. He only said the word property, which encompassed life, liberty, 
and the pursuit of happiness. So really what he argued for were property rights. And of course, the term property rights can be confusing. People sometimes use it exclusively to mean rights pertaining to real estate. And then others will expand it to include movable property or money or stuff. But really, property includes everything. It includes your life and liberty because they're components of what Locke calls the ultimate property right, ownership of oneself. The first thing that you can assume that is self-evident is that every man owns himself. And once you accept that all individuals own themselves, the rest of the rights kind of naturally follow. So if you own yourself, it's up to you what you direct your body to do or not to do what your mind thinks or doesn't think, what you say or don't say, and that we call liberty, which is a component of property rather than a distinct right. The same with life. If you own yourself, well, somebody can't come and kill you. And that really is the right to life is not just the indiscriminate right to live under any circumstances. I mean, if you get killed in an earthquake, we don't say that the earthquake violated your right to life. It's particularly when somebody else assaults or kills you that we say your right to life was violated. And that's why I've said that the right to life and the right to keep and bear arms are so closely related. In fact, really, the right to life and the right to self-defense are really identical. There's really not much difference between the two, being that when you say the right to life, it really means the right to not be harmed or killed by another person. Now, up until recently, that right wasn't under the kind of attack it is right now. I mean, pretty much right, left, center, everybody agreed on the right to life, I guess with the exception of the abortion issue, which we'll leave for another day. But we can see now that the right to self-defense is under attack, even more than just restricting your right to bear arms. This latest trial with Kyle Rittenhouse put the right to self-defense on trial, which is pretty scary stuff. And of course, liberty has always been under attack right from the minute they ink dried on the Constitution, <laughs> maybe even when the ink was first put on the paper. But most of the conflicts usually come down to that last one that we mentioned, which is your money, your land, and your stuff. I mean, most arguments usually boil down to some kind of economic argument. And the right to own things besides your body and besides having your liberty is something that takes probably a few more steps to get to, but let's let's get to them. So you have a right to all the wealth that you legitimately own, and legitimate ownership is established in any of three ways. One, you homestead a physical resource, meaning you expend your labor to take possession of it directly out of nature, if you could find some land that's not currently owned by someone else. The second way is you obtain the wealth through a voluntary exchange with its previous owner. That could mean that you trade some money for something or something of value you have for money, or it could mean that this person just gives you a gift. I mean, that's also a legitimate way to acquire ownership of something. And the third way is you create the wealth yourself by combining your mental or physical labor with materials obtained through number one or number two. Those are the ways that you acquire wealth legitimately. And it's important to realize the basis for ownership of a homesteaded resource is labor. So if there's a tree standing in a remote forest that's not owned by somebody else, 
and it's just standing there. I mean, that tree is not an economic good. It can't do anything for any anybody while it's just standing in the forest. It can't be made into a two by four or a table until someone applies his labor to cut it down and transport it to the sawmill. And let's remember, labor isn't just this mental or physical effort. It's also time. So as we all know, we have a finite amount of time during our lives here on earth. And when a logger cuts down a tree to bring it to the sawmill, the sawmill owner isn't just buying the tree. He's buying the tree plus some portion of the logger's life. That's what he invested to get the tree from the forest to the sawmill. He had to give up part of his life for that. And that's how the ownership is established. The logger is exchanging part of his life to convert the tree from some remote object that is not an economic good into something that the sawmill owner can use. This is why the logger not only owns the good, but you know, he would have a better claim on it than anyone else could possibly make because nobody else has given up any part of their life for that tree. Now, of course, what's more likely to happen than one lone logger going out there and cutting down this tree and bringing it in is that somebody who owns a company is going to employ people to cut down the trees and move them. And, of course, the left will argue there that this person is exploiting the workers who actually do the work, and therefore he shouldn't own the trees to sell to the sawmill. So just to break down why that argument is wrong, let's just think about what has happened, the steps that occurred up until people started cutting down trees. And that is the owner of the business bought the equipment acquired the rights to the land or either by purchasing it or acquiring the rights to cut down trees on it and prepared this opportunity. And then what did he do? He put out an ad saying, I need tree choppers, loggers, and made an agreement with each of the people who helped in the efforts to purchase their labor. So the people cutting down the trees didn't buy the equipment They didn't create the opportunity. They didn't get the rights to go in and cut the trees down. They merely showed up and sold their labor services to the company owner in exchange for a mutually agreed price. So no one is being exploited here. Every one of the loggers had the opportunity to go out and do the same thing that the company owner did. They didn't want to, and there's nothing wrong with not wanting to. Their preference was to seek opportunities where they could just apply their labor. Now, some other time or some other place, some of those loggers may get their own crews together and do the same thing that the owner did. So this whole idea that they're being exploited is, of course, nonsense. But I just wanted to break down the steps of what actually happened there. There were a bunch of voluntary transactions And part of the agreement was I provide the saws or the equipment, the trucks, the opportunity to go and cut down the trees. You go apply your labor. You're going to get this amount of money. I keep the trees to sell to the sawmill. Anyway, the important thing here is to understand that at that point, the owner of the company owns that lumber. And the loggers who worked for the owner of the company owns those wages. They are their property, every bit as much as their bodies are still their property. And of course, their right to order their actions as they see fit, as long as they don't violate the property of others. 
So getting back to the Declaration of Independence, Jefferson says that the purpose of the government is to secure these inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Of course, implicit in the words among these is that there are many other rights that are not named but assumed to exist. And again, I think that opens a door that doesn't need to be opened because I want to read you the way Locke put this, which is much more cut and dried. Locke never said life, liberty, and property. That's a paraphrase that somewhat obscures or uh, confuses what he said. Here's what he said about why people form societies and governments. And I'm reading from his essay, The Second Treatise. This makes him willing to quit a condition which, however free, is full of fears and continual dangers. And it is not without reason that he seeks out and is willing to join in society with others who are already united or have a mind to unite for the mutual preservation of their lives, liberties, and estates, which I call by the general name property. The great and chief end, therefore, of men's uniting into commonwealths and putting themselves under government is the preservation of their property. Well, that makes it a little simpler, doesn't it? And you can see how this directly applies to the whole healthcare is a right argument because the response is, well, no, I certainly can't have a right to healthcare if it's the labor of somebody else. I don't own that person. I don't own their labor. And if they produce, let's say, medicines or, or drugs, I don't own those either. I didn't trade any part of my life to produce those medicines or drugs. So, of course, healthcare can't be a right. And, of course, the lefty is going to say, well, don't worry. We're going to pay the doctor or the pharmaceutical company. Nobody is going to get stolen from here. And, of course, that's the shell game, right? We're going to steal from the taxpayer. But the answer is really the same thing. I don't own the labor of the taxpayer. I don't own the taxpayer's body. I don't own the taxpayer's money. So I can't have a right to that either. And I know this might seem like six or one half dozen of the other in some respects, but I think this makes it a lot more cut and dried. And it doesn't just work in terms of things the government is trying to force you to do. It also works in terms of things the government is trying to prohibit you from doing, things that you have a right to do. Like, let's say, leave your house or go to your job and earn a living. And how does it apply there? Well, it's the same principle. I don't have a right as an individual to lock everybody else in my community in their home and not let them go out because I'm afraid that they may catch a virus. I have a right to stay in my own home. I have a right to not patronize a business, let's say, that stays open and doesn't require people to have masks or vaccines or whatever other requirements public health officials might think are going to work. But I really, I don't own their business. I don't own their bodies or their homes. And the only thing I do own is my own body. So I can stay home, but I can't prohibit other people from leaving their houses. Nor do I have any legitimate authority as an individual to order a business I don't own to close or to order them to require all their patrons to have masks or proof of vaccines. I don't own that property. So I can't make rules on it. Only the owner of the property can make rules. They can require proof of vaccine or a mask, or they can waive those requirements as they see fit. 
And the argument that this increases the risk of harm to others just doesn't hold water here because we have a choice whether we go in or not. So I could ask in advance, are you requiring people to wear masks? Are you requiring people to show proof of vaccination? And if they are not, I'm free not to enter that business. But I can't make that risk decision for other people on their property. And of course, if I don't have that legitimate authority as an individual, I couldn't delegate it to a government. So as you can see, the Lockean principle applies directly to the craziness we've been subjected to over the past two years. And I mean, it could even be applied to other arguments. I mean, this whole idea of a right to travel. So you have a right to travel as long as you're on your own property or you're on land that's not owned by anybody. I mean, I don't have a right to travel through your living room because I don't own your living room. And this is where, of course, what we call public property, which should be considered an oxymoron, but it's not, unfortunately. This is where all the conflict is. I mean, whether you talk about what happens in schools or whether you talk about immigration, it all has to do with who's allowed on public property. I only have the right to prohibit people from entering my own land. But what about those streets that the government claims are theirs? I mean, this is the inherent problem with public property. And of course, we should want everything to be privately owned or to be considered what they call commons. Unfortunately, since the founding of this country, any land not owned by an individual just considered to be owned by the government which is kind of a Marxist idea even before Marx was around. And the government somewhat tried to treat non-privately owned land as commons in that it allowed people to buy it at a very cheap price. Because, of course, the government wanted land settled. It wanted it acquired and then produced upon for all sorts of reasons, good and bad. But really, there should be a distinction between what is under the jurisdiction of a government and what a government owns. And the government really shouldn't be owning any land other than what's required for the courthouse or the Navy Yard or some other thing that the government's supposed to be doing. And of course, all this is from the minarchist perspective. You know, once you get into the hardcore libertarianism, as I call it, the Murray Rothbard stuff, well, you know, there shouldn't be any government at all. And all of this should be either privately owned or commons, and preferably privately owned, because the tragedy of the commons is a real thing. So I guess I just wanted to throw that idea out there to take this way of talking about natural rights, inalienable rights for a spin, and start talking about it in terms of property instead. And of course, I've written several things along these lines why the minimum wage law is bad, because I don't own these other people. You know, everyone talks about the minimum wage laws as if they only affect employers. And they just ignore the fact that you're prohibiting a person who might want to work for $5 an hour, let's say, maybe even at a second job that they're not very good at yet to develop another skill. You're prohibiting that worker as much as you're prohibiting the employer. And that's the real reason for minimum wage. It's not because employers are exploiting workers. It's because workers are trying to do protectionism against other workers who might underbid them for the work they're doing. I mean, that's what minimum wage laws are really about. But the bottom line is I don't own other people. So I don't own their labor. So I cannot tell them they're not allowed to work for $5 an hour. Okay, And that's the basis for why a minimum wage law is immoral. 
And I guess implicit in everything I've been saying so far is one other concept that I'll leave you with out of the John Locke essay. And this is another one that really was pretty groundbreaking. And that is that since all legitimate powers of the government are delegated to it by the people, no individual can delegate a power to the government that he doesn't possess in what Locke called the state of nature, the state without government. That's a really important concept, and it applies just as much to the anarcho-capitalist model as it does to the minarchist model. In the minarchist model, it means that no matter how many people vote, no matter how many individuals get together to form a majority within this set of arbitrary lines on the ground or some other set of lines, nobody can give a power to the government that every individual doesn't have in the state without government. And that's very, very limiting. So you can vote as hard as you want, but you can never force one person to, let's say, buy health care services for another or provide education to another. And really, it's this principle that informs what Murray Rothbard did for the libertarian movement and finally taking it that last 10 yards, because he basically said, look, Securing one's property is just another service, not really that different from healthcare or education or fixing your car. It's just something else that we ask other people to do for us. Security. We hire security guards at department stores. So there's no intrinsic reason why this is somehow different than healthcare or car repairs or whatever. And so using Locke's principle, no individual has a right to force another to buy their property protection program, otherwise known as government. And using Locke's reasoning, if I don't have the legitimate authority to force somebody to buy this property protection program in the state of nature, then I can't delegate that authority to the government. And once you conclude I can't delegate that authority to the government, well, I'm fresh out of things to delegate to the government, and you've eliminated the possibility of having a government. Now, the statists argue that the government is something we all agreed to form, and that gets back to the discussion we had before about consent. There really is no such thing as consent other than by the individual. And if that's true, there can be no consent of the governed other than at the individual level. So in conclusion, what I'm suggesting is that we start using the idea of property in the Lockean sense, that property includes life, liberty, your justly acquired possessions, and every other right that you legitimately have as a way to cut through the confusion that the status creates. You can make the statement that every human conflict comes down to a matter of who has a property right in this situation and who does not. And using that measuring stick can even help us clear up confusion in our own minds about where we should stand on certain issues from a libertarian perspective. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. Don't forget to get a free copy of my new ebook, An Anti-State Christmas, at antistatechristmas.com. Of course, if you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you normally listen. And please do go to the Tom Mullen Talks Freedom website at tommullentalksfreedom.com and leave a review. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. 
The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.